You're listening to Tavis Smiley, and I'm glad about it. Uh, We are now in hour two, and uh, another great hour in front of us after this one. So uh, thanks for tuning in today. In this hour, conversation with Nat Glover, the first black man to have been elected sheriff in the Deep South since 1888. It just so happens that Glover is the former sheriff in a place called Jacksonville, Florida, where the murders of these three precious black fellow citizens happened just days ago. We were talking this hour about striving for justice as a black sheriff in the Deep South. Now that we're joined by Nat Glover. Mr. Glover, how are you, sir? I'm fine. How are you, Travis? Man, if I complain, I'd be an ingrate. I am doing well. I'm delighted to have you on this program. And uh, I uh, am anxious to get into your into your new book called Striving for Justice, a black sheriff in the Deep South. Glad we have the hour to sort of unpack uh, some of what you've written in this in this uh, powerful powerful text. Let me start with the obvious, though. Um, uh, we've been discussing it on this program, as has uh, the nation. Uh, what happened in Jacksonville um, some days ago? I don't need to color it much for you, given that this is uh, your neck of the woods. But um, what did you uh, what did you make? What do you make of what happened days ago in Jacksonville? Well, I was really saddened uh, by the, the tragic. That occurred here in Jacksonville. You know, you you do have those uh, militant uh, racist groups out there, but when they decide to come into a populated area and start shooting, somehow I think uh, they've been encouraged or emboldened. So, so I'm kind of uh, concerned about that. But um, it was a, a sad day and. Uh, Three people kill, um, and that's uh, most unfortunate. But um, in this country, we've had some situations that look like that we, um, as well as we move forward, we sometimes have to take a few steps back. But we will continue to, to move forward here in this country with racial harmony. Mm. Um, I hope you're right about that last part. Um, let me ask you, as a as a uh, as, as former sheriff uh, in 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 that community, um, your take on guns. Um, I'm always fascinated to hear uh, people who have been in and are in law enforcement talk about guns. The rest of us are talking about it. We have our view on it. Um, this young man clearly had um, um, the assailant clearly had a, a a track record of having mental health issues. And even with that track record, he was allowed to legally buy the guns that he used on the day he murdered um, these three African-Americans. What, what's your take on, 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 on the gun culture, on gun violence in this country? Well, I, I think, um, you know, my perspective is that that part is on us mm-hmm. as a society because you and I know that when a person has some mental challenges, they um, entertain thoughts that's not rational. So what we need to do is, as well as we can, control their environment and also control their access to uh, certain instruments that would be of danger to other people. And that's guns, that's explosives, that's putting them in a situation where it would jeopardize others. And um, we just haven't been able to implement the kind of uh, reg- uh, legislation that would 
restrict access Mm -hmm. to the point where that wouldn't happen. So I put that one on us as a society. Um, Is it your view that America has a gun problem? Um, I think so. You know, the right to bear arms is a fundamental right. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I do believe that uh, the office of the Constitution also expected us to be, and I say us, as a society, as a governing body, since we have a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, then I think they would have had to look to us to make the best uh, decisions for the time that we are in. And I think uh, as I look at the toxic environment of the governance in our two-party system now, I think we are failing in that in some instances, too mm-hmm. many instances. Mm-hmm. How, how, do, how do you read the data that suggests that the group in this country buying guns the fastest right now are actually black folk? Um, <laughs> uh, say that again, uh, the, the, Travis. The, yeah, the data the data suggests that the group of Americans right now who are buying guns at a faster clip than anybody else are black folk. In other words, black folk are arming themselves. When we come forward, I want to get your take on that. Just watching my clock here, I don't want to get you started and have to cut you off on that response. Uh, it's fascinating for me that in this particular moment, black people are buying a whole lot of guns. Uh, there's a black militia. I was just uh, watching a piece on uh, one of the news networks the other night about this black militia that is now formed. Um, so black people are starting to feel some sort of heat or feel some sort of way uh, about the future of this country, and they are arming themselves. And I want to get uh, Nat Glover's take on that when we come forward. He's author of the new book, Striving for Justice, a Black Sheriff in the Deep South. You're listening to Nat Glover right now on Tavis Smiley. Truth. Speaking, Speaking the truth. truth. This, this is the Tavis Smiley Show. Show. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. Our guest this hour is Nathaniel Nat Glover. He's author of the new book, Striving for Justice, a Black Sheriff in the Deep South. In a moment, you're going to hear the harrowing story of what happened to him in Jacksonville as a 17-year-old, uh, 17-year-old black boy. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an arresting story. Of, uh, of Nat Glover, and we'll talk about the book in a second. And again, that story of what happened to him in Jacksonville as a 17-year-old black kid. Before I do that, though, just uh, a final question here about uh, about black folk and guns. Um, so we, we saw what this young white boy did, killing these three precious uh, black lives, um, snuffing out these black lives days ago in your hometown of Jacksonville, uh, Nat Glover. Uh, I was asking what you make of the fact that in a moment like this, uh, apparently black folk are feeling something that's driving them to arm themselves. How do you read that? Well, I read that like they're obviously a person that's looking at that would say they are preparing for some kind of reprisal, mm-hmm. it, even if it's no more than being prepared to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you this, that's, that's taking us down a road that uh, we as a society uh, certainly would not like to see. So uh, I, as I talk to people, I, I see more law enforcement officers at Sunday morning in the black church protecting the church. When 
uh, you didn't hardly see that at mm-hmm. one time. Mm-hmm. And, and that is because there is a sense of feeling some threat. So with that, um, I'm going to say that's a road that we need to look at and see if we can't resolve this in a way uh better than us against them. Yeah, I, I take your point, um, but I guess the question is, what are black folk to do? Um, this killer in your hometown of Jacksonville, uh, Florida, that went uh, to this dollar uh, store and, and killed uh, these black folk, um, we are told that he went to an HBCU campus first. He tried to get on HB, uh, an HBCU campus and was turned away, and that's how he found himself later at this store. So clearly he had it out for black people. He didn't get on this black campus, and then he goes to this store and kills black people there. Um, and I could do this all day long if I had the time of, of black people being targeted. We saw it in Buffalo, New York, and all the stuff I know, you know as well, um, uh, Mr. Glover. So black people, you know, I said on this program earlier this week, on Monday we celebrated, commemorated the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, as everybody knows. And it's a, it's a, it's apparently, uh, it's apparent to me, it's clear to me, that black folk, 60 years after the March on Washington, are still the most hated folk in this country. So I hear your point uh, about us going down a particular road, but when black life in 2023 is still threatened in that way, when we're still hated in the way that we are, we'll hear your story in a moment of what happened to you as a 17-year-old in Jacksonville, Florida. That stuff is still happening. So if not arming themselves, what is your, what's, what's your advice? What, what, what are black folk to do? Well, that's a, a a good question, and um, and the the natural nature of a person is certainly to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, they are remediating in that area to uh, a certain degree, but it's also uh, kind of like what um, Martin Luther King um, was saying Mm -hmm. and that is there were others when you had blatant racial discrimination uh there were a segment in our community that that wanted to strike back uh with violence Mm -hmm. and martin luther king preached um of course um non-violence and and he prevailed and i think his leadership in that area uh, put us where we are now, and, and believe me now, the reason that you have such blatant uh, attacks is because African Americans are moving forward in this country mm-hmm. at a rate that concern uh, some of the other race, to be honest with you. When you end up electing um, an African American sheriff, I'm sorry, African American president, in this country, and then you have a situation like George Floyd, mm-hmm. and you look at the protesters in the street, and there were times when it looked like it was more white protesters than it were black. I can tell you those who are diligent protectors of white privilege are very, very concerned about that. But we are going to have to keep moving forward even if we have to take a step back, we have to continue to push forward. Mm. You're in the Deep South, and I'm, I'm working my way right into your book here in just a second. You're in the Deep South. Tell me, um, as, a, as a former sheriff, um, how concerned you are about white 
supremacy uh, in the South, and for that matter, all across the country. What, what's your read of that right about now in 2023? Yeah, um, you, you, when you look at the toxic environment of our governance mm-hmm. in this country, I'm, I'm talking Democrat, Republicans, and when you look at in our governing system, we are supposed to have a system where the um, the objective is to do what's best for the citizens. But when it's so clear that that's not necessarily happening, it's we are in this us and them environment where if one side says yes, the other side going to say no, no matter what the the objective is. And it just seemed like the, the citizens' rights, needs, and all of that are incidental. Mm-hmm. So we got to find our way out of this hole that we're in. Because in my opinion, it's not serving anyone. And uh, when you have a Senate that tells a black president that I'm not going to entertain your nomination for the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and it's a year out, and they don't do it, and says it in open, and I mean, where are we in mm-hmm. our society? I'm concerned about that, Tavis. Yeah, no, I hear you. Let me, let me just let me put a finer point on that, and we'll move on into your book, Striving for Justice, A Black Sheriff in the, in the Deep South, and I want the audience to hear what happened to you as a 17-year-old as I said uh, moments ago. But I want to just just add something right quick to what you said about uh, Mitch McConnell and those Republican senators who refused to give Barack Obama's nominee, uh, Merrick Garland, at the time a hearing, even though the election was a year out. And McConnell argued we're going to wait till after the election. Um, no doubt about the fact that uh, McConnell was wrong, uh, that he uh, the president uh, got played in that regard. Uh, and we, we know that story well. But I was, I was literally just in conversation 48 hours ago with a, with a few people, and we were talking about this. And what came out of that conversation, and I'm putting this out there just for folk to think about this. Barack Obama had the opportunity, had he chosen to do so, to pick Katanji Brown Jackson. She was on his list. Rather than pick KBJ, Barack Obama chose to go with Merrick Garland. Because he chose Merrick Garland, another white guy, uh, Mitch McConnell and those Republicans felt no compunction whatsoever to push back on Obama the way that they did. Consider the following. What would McConnell have done if Obama had, in fact, nominated the first black woman to sit on the United States Supreme Court? Think about it for just a second. There is absolutely no way that Mitch McConnell would have had the nerve, the temerity, the racial politics would have been too hot for him to deny the first African-American woman nominated to the Supreme Court a hearing. In, 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 in this regard, the fact that Merrick Garland was another white male allowed McConnell to do what he had done. There was nothing historic about that. But if Obama, ahead of Joe Biden, had nominated KBJ, to that to that seat, it would have put McConnell in a trick bag like he couldn't have imagined. And I believe that he would not have had the opportunity. He would not have dared to do to KBJ in that moment what he did to Merrick Garland. 
So the question is, did Barack Obama make the wrong choice in that moment? Now, he could not have known necessarily that McConnell was going to behave in that way. I get that. I'm just asking a question. What would have happened had Obama nominated KBJ and not Joe Biden? I leave that alone. I only go there because of what uh, Mr. Glover said moments ago. Just something for you to think about. Uh, Obama could have played McConnell as opposed to getting played by McConnell. If he had chosen to nominate this first black woman, he chose not to do it, even though she was on his list. I digress on that. Your book is called Striving for Justice, A Black Sheriff in the Deep South. Um, and there's a harrowing story in this book. It's fascinating for me when I get into the book, uh, knowing, of course, that you were the first uh, black to be elected as sheriff in the Deep South since 1888. But it's fascinating for me how you chose to become a law enforcement officer, given what happened to you when you were just 17. Nat Glover, tell the story. Well, let me, uh, if you don't mind, Tavis, I would like to just come from Barack Obama's uh, perspective. Sure. When you are the first of anything, you have to make decisions based on sometimes uh, go against what you think that might be uh, even uh, the best. Mm -hmm. But you have to go with something that you think that might get implemented. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you there were many times where I wanted to put a person in a position. Mm -hmm. But I knew everybody was watching, and I did not want to give them any reason to push back. Mm -hmm. So I tried to do what was best that will serve both causes. And I know Barack Obama was trying to do the same thing. I, I don't, you you know, just almost have to be in that position. No. To understand that position, I I am I am I am, I am, I am I'm not, and I'm not being argumentative. I just this is a rich dialogue, and I love this. That's why I do talk with you every day, so we can get into these rich rich conversations. I hear your point, and my 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 retort is simply this: Number one, uh, uh, Mr. Glover, uh, Sheriff Glover, they're gonna push back on you anyway, and with all due respect, that's the lesson I think Barack Obama didn't learn until too late: that you are a Negro. Mitch McConnell told you on the first day you took office, his job was to defeat you. His job was to make sure that you were not successful. He told you that on day one. Fast forward a few days later, you're giving a speech and somebody stands up in the will of the Congress and calls you a liar in the middle of the speech. I could do this all day long if I had the time. On and on and on, there are examples that he should have picked up on that they are not going to let you do this easily. They're going to push back on you at every turn anyway. So if black people have come to the come to the rescue and we've turned out in record numbers to put you in there, then go ahead and do what you got to do anyway because the pushback is going to come. I hear your point that folk are watching and you didn't want to give them any reason to push back on you, but they're going to push back on you anyway, Sheriff. So why not push your agenda through? Well, point taken. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I hear you. Yeah, and I, I and, hear you. And I'm and I'm not. I don't. I don't think that Merrick Garland was necessarily a bad choice. That's not my argument. I don't think he was a bad choice. I'm just saying politically and strategically, Obama could have. This this ain't checkers. This is chess. And I think Obama could have outmaneuvered Mitch McConnell. Again, he knew McConnell was not going to do him any favors. And I believe that he could have outmaneuvered him by appointing KBJ and not Merrick Garland. I repeat, I do not believe 
And there is no way that black folk in this country, look at all the love that KBJ got when Joe Biden nominated her. There is absolutely no way that black folk would have stood by, that progressives would have stood by. I mean, white progressives, no way a historic moment like KBJ could have happened and we would have allowed Mitch McConnell to deny the first African-American woman nominated a hearing. No way he could have gotten away with that. And I believe, again, it's the fact that Merrick Garland was, in fact, uh, just another white male that McConnell just played politics as he usually does, being the white male that he is. But if KBJ had been the nominee, I do not believe that story would have turned out the way that it did. I'm watching my clock here, and I know if I let you start answering this question now about what happened to you, and you are certainly entitled to respond to what I said, and I'm glad you did. I take your point, you take my point. It's all good and it's all love. But I want the audience to hear this story of what happened to you as a 17-year-old boy uh, when you walked outside one night from the job that you were working uh, at. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a miracle to me, uh, and, and maybe not a miracle, but it's fascinating. Certainly that after what happened to you, you still decided to become a, uh, a, a member of law enforcement. We're talking to Nathaniel Nat Glover. His book is called striving for justice, a black sheriff in the deep South. And we will get that answer, uh, get that story. I should say and a great deal more. There's a lot in this book to unpack and we'll spend the rest of our time talking about it. When we come forward on Tavis smiling. Hope. Agency Dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Sounds different. different. Huh. This, this is Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley in conversation with uh, Nathaniel Nat Glover, author of the book. The book is called Striving for Justice, A Black Sheriff in the Deep South. Um, Mr. Glover, tell me the story. What happened to you when you were a 17-year-old kid in Jacksonville? Well, Travis, I can tell you the incident that happened to me when I was 17 years old um, pretty much shaped my life. Mm -hmm. And it is a day that I could have died. It wouldn't have been nothing less than um, a modern-day lynching. Mm. I happened to be working at Morrison Cafeteria um, in downtown Jacksonville, and on that particular Saturday, there were some sit-in demonstrations going on throughout downtown Jacksonville. And they were mostly conducted by the youth group of the NAACP. And uh, just for those individuals who don't know what a sit-in demonstration is, um, at that time, uh, the rights of um, African Americans were so restricted that you could uh, go into a, a, a department store and, of course, buy clothes and that kind of thing. But if they had a lunch counter in mm-hmm. there, you were prohibited. You were prohibited from sitting at that lunch counter with white people. And these sit-in demonstrators were coming in and going into these stores, making a purchase, and then sitting down at the lunch counter, which pretty much shut the lunch counter down. Well, on this particular Saturday, they, uh, it was out in the community that these um, white racists and Klansmen were going to put a stop to it. So they came into downtown Jacksonville and literally, literally shut down downtown Jacksonville. And there was a truck pulled up, loaded with axe handles, 
brand new axe handles. Mm. And each one of these people were issued an axe handle. And when those sit-in demonstrators came in and, and sat at the lunch counter, they attacked them with those axe handles and ran them out of town. Now, I was working at the cafeteria. I did not know what was happening on the outside. I wasn't part of the demonstration. I was working. Mm -hmm. And that day, the manager of the cafeteria came to our work area in the dish room and told us to leave, get out of Jack get out of downtown Jacksonville right now. Mm -hmm. And and everybody cleared out but me. My job was to mop the floor after everybody left. And, of course, they were trying to convince me to go, but I had this work ethic that I didn't leave a job before I finished. Mm. So I mopped that whole area. So I left an hour after everybody else has gone, mm -hmm. had gone. So when I walked out, I walked into a mob that quickly encircled me, and they all had axe handles. I was in the middle, and they were menacingly hitting me with the axe handle and calling me names, mm. and and that, and I was terrified, to be honest with you. But there was a police officer standing right outside the circle that was not uh, taking any kind of uh, uh, abatement or uh, police actions. He was just watching. Mm. So I ran over to him and said, please help me, officer. And he said to me, and this, this particular statement rang in my ears today, he said, you better get out of here before they kill you. And, and I ran. Mm. And I tell you, Tavis, I ran home. If, which was about a mile away from downtown Jacksonville. I was so afraid I didn't even look back to see when or if they stopped chasing me. And when I got home, I cried, and I cried all day. Mm. And I can tell you to this day, I was not crying because of pain. If I was hurting, I was unaware of it. I was crying because I was so afraid, and I ran. I ran from a fight. And in my neighborhood, you did not run from a fight. Mm -hmm. If you ran from a fight, you were considered a coward, and you would have had to live with that the rest of your life. So I ran because I was afraid, and I did not want to be a coward. So I made this promise to myself. I will never run away from another fight. Mm. I will never not do something that I should do or something that I should do, not do it because I fear. And in that sense, it changed my life. And to that day, I live by that mantra. And to a great degree, it has served me well. Mm. And it it also solidified my desire to be a police officer and be in that process that strive for justice. See, I, 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 having gone through the book, uh, of course, I, I get it. Um, but for those who may be listening right now who are having a very difficult time trying to understand why it is that when your life was literally on the line, uh, a police officer refused to help you and told you to run before they killed you but did nothing to come to your aid 
why it is that that motivated you to become a cop rather than hating every cop you see for the rest of your life? Well, it it wasn't it that that wasn't even uh, close. I had always wanted to be a detective, mm-hmm. and and I can tell you this today. And some of my friends don't like when I said this, but I believe that police officer standing outside of that circle watching might have prevented one of those individuals from hitting me in the head with that mm-hmm. axe handle and me going down and a, a, a frenzy of axe <laughs> hits sure. could have followed. But but I I tell you this, what it did do, it put a kind of run to the fire instead of running away from the fire uh, attitude in my mind and heart. Mm -hmm. And it was able to help me distinguish my career in a way that I was able to move through the ranks to become um, a law enforcement officer and not only that, eventually be elected sheriff, and not only that, subsequently be nominated to the law, Florida Law Enforcement Hall of Fame. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I hear the story. You told it beautifully. Uh, but when you have a bunch of white folks surrounding you with axe handles uh, and there's no way, you know, you could you could win that fight against all of those forces. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm disturbed and troubled by why even then you felt like a coward. I understand the, the rule of the neighborhood. You don't run from a fight. But that wasn't really that wasn't a fair fight. I mean, you 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 couldn't have taken on all those white boys with those axe handles, and yet you still felt like a coward for running away. And that was that was a result of my uh, immaturity because yeah. no one that I've talked to has said that that was not the right thing to do to run. Sure. And and so and to this day, I I believe that from a logical perspective. But I did not want my friends to to call me a coward. Mm-hmm. And that, in a way, and I'm going to say, Tavis, I don't hesitate to say in a divine way. Yes. It put me in a mindset that allowed me to be first one through the door when there were others who yeah. might be fearful. Nope, I get it. I get it. I, I get what how that uh, you know informed your life uh, every day thereafter, and it informed his life in such a way that he goes on to become the first black man to be elected sheriff in the Deep South uh, since 1888. And we'll talk when we come forward about some of the amazing things he did uh, as sheriff. In fact, he was the head of the country, uh, frankly, um, in most departments. When it came to banning chokeholds, we'll talk about that when we come forward with Nat Glover on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Are you ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Nat Glover, I was in uh, not Florida, but Mississippi last weekend. Mississippi happens to be the state of my birth. I live in Los Angeles. This program is heard nationwide, but we are flagshipped here in L.A. where I've lived uh, most of my life. Uh, but I was born in Mississippi uh, on the Gulf Coast there in Gulfport, the Biloxi area. And I was back in Mississippi last weekend with my friend Cornell West. Speaking of presidents, we were talking about Obama earlier. Cornell West, of course, running for president on the Green Party uh, ticket uh, as an independent 
So he and I were together last weekend in Mississippi, and I said to him, uh, we were being escorted around the state as we went from event to event by the state police. And I looked at him at one point, and I said, I said, Doc, here we are in the back of a police car <laughs> being escorted by the police in the state of Mississippi, two black men being escorted and protected by state police. Uh, and we've, we've, we, got, we got a lot more to do in this country, but it was just a moment where he and I just looked at each other and just kind of had a moment uh, about what, uh, what that means in a, in a place like Mississippi, that we were in the back of a police car not to be taken somewhere and, and killed like Emmett Till, but being protected as we moved around the state uh, to the events that we had to go to. Um, I raise that to ask, what is it like being a black sheriff in the Deep South? You were the first one elected since 1888. What was that experience like? It was, it was uh, I guess, a, a gratifying experience for me, but I also knew that I was under intense scrutiny. Sure. And I had to get it right. And, and to be just uh, a normal, another sheriff, would would be uh, almost criminal in my situations. So I had to do something, uh, a number of things that would distinguish me from my peers. When I went to the first uh, uh, Florida Sheriff's Association meeting, mm -hmm. I could tell uh, I was welcomed by a few. Mm. Uh, another, I'm going to say another class of a few uh, <laughs> was kind of tolerant. But uh, most of the other were keeping a distance. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had to add some kind of do something for them to accept me. Yeah. And um, I came back and, of course, initiated my um, community policing initiative to a level where the president of the United States called me and and said to me, I understand you walk through the neighborhoods and talk to the citizens on a regular basis, mm -hmm. and I want to come down and bring Attorney General Janet Reno with me, and we want to walk through a neighborhood with you. Mm -hmm. And it, it, he, did, he did that, and when he came down, of course, the governor of the state of Florida came down, and we walked through a neighborhood, a regular walk. And then when I went back to my next Florida Sheriff's Association meeting, they all wanted to know how I did it. <laughs> there you go. And, and so you have to earn yes. that kind of recognition of raising your head above your peer group. That's what I've done throughout my career. Yep, nothing succeeds like success. And I ain't mad at you, Sheriff Glover. Uh, when we come forward in our remaining moments, I want to talk to him specifically about um, uh, his decision his courageous decision to ban chokeholds before many in the country uh, realized uh, how wrong that was. Uh, it took a while for people to catch up to that after Eric Garner, after the knee on Derek Chauvin's neck. Jordan Neely recently choked out on a subway in New York City, but he was ahead of the country in banning chokeholds. We'll talk about that uh, when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. 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 That's who. The conversation continues right now. 
Got just a few minutes left in this conversation with uh, Nathaniel Nat Glover, uh, former Jacksonville sheriff, activist, leader, author of the book, Striving for Justice, a black sheriff in the Deep South. Um, in these last few minutes, I want to talk about this chokehold. Um, we, 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 we see some progress that's been made in this country, uh, Sheriff Glover, after uh, the deaths of these black men uh, whose names I just ran a moment ago. Um, George Floyd, Eric Garner, Jordan Neely on that subway uh, most recently. Um, but you realized uh, a while ago that these chokeholds needed um, uh, uh, to, to, to go. Um, what, 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 what made you understand that and see that before others did? Well, I, I can tell you right now, um, I, I began to see a, a, a pattern. Mm -hmm. And the pattern was clearly most of the people who were subjected to chokeholds, in my opinion, were people who were suffering from mental challenges. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when you start telling police officers, look, I'm going to take this tool away from you, then, of course, they start to push back. But I thought it was one of those situations. They call it officially the lateral vascular neck restraint. Mm -hmm. But I had a situation in my jail where a person uh, uh, had to be subjected to that, and he died. So at that point, incidentally, he was on the mental ward in the jail. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I said, enough of this. And I went ahead and banned it. Now, I got pushed back from the uh, officers. I got pushed back uh, from the, um, the labor fraternal order police mm -hmm. and all of that. But I thought it was important that we did this. Yeah. And I did it, and, and it, it worked out. And I feel a bad. I feel great that I did it. Yeah. Let me close with this. I got about uh, two, about ninety seconds left. Um, you had huge success. Uh, again, President Clinton and others came down to, to to take note of your success when it came to community based policing. Um, can that model still work? Does it still work in an era where I think it's fair to say that more of us now than ever distrust police? Yeah, it's got to work. See, uh, police officers and the police uh, agencies are not an occupied force. If they don't work with the communities, you will never be able to solve crimes in a way uh, with the level of efficiency that it will be effective. And in addition to that, it will be a great crime prevention mm. because if some of these bad guys know that you uh, under scrutiny and the people going to step forward and help, then they will not commit some crimes that they do commit. So I think it's important that we work with the community. we got to win that trust, and the people have to see that the law enforcement community has integrity. And incidentally, Tavis, the book, Striving for Justice, the proceeds will go to educate poor kids who have the ability to go to college, but will not have the uh, funds to go. So mm -hmm. that's what this is all about. Nat Glover is still helping people. Um, he's the former Jacksonville sheriff uh, and author of the book Striving for Justice, a black sheriff in the Deep South, the first black man to have been elected sheriff in the Deep South since 1888. It's a fitting book called Striving for Justice. Sheriff Glover, good to have you on the program, sir. All the best to you. Thank you for your time. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you, Tavis. Good to have you on.